with Custodians of the Planet. Custodians of the Planet brings consciousness to environmental issues and looks at different perspectives regarding the tensions and harmony of human activities in a changing climate. Poetry is one of the mature art forms that predate written text. Poetry is a powerful means of expression and inspired by the state of our daily life. Words are a force of nature to reckon with. Particularly, one of the subgenres called eco-poetry aims to be the voice of environment and nature. Although there has been pastoral poetry, eco-poetry is an avant-garde expression of ecological ethics and focuses on environmental disasters and ecological imperatives that seek social change. Today, John Kinsella joins us from Western Australia, Wheatbelt. John is a nonviolent activist. He is the author of over 40 books. He is the recipient of Prime Minister Literary Award and the Victorian Premier's Award for Poetry and many other awards. John, welcome to Custodians of the Planet. Oh, thanks for having me. To begin with, for someone who's never been to Western Australia Wheat Belt, how would you describe it? Oh, well, it, what it's like now and what it was once like are very different things, of course. It's now largely a cleared area. There's only 3% of the original bush vegetation, natural vegetation left because of the end of the 19th century and especially the early 20th century and into the 20th century, there was massive clearing and uh, you know just wholesale clearing of the bush so crops could be grown wheat crops and uh, other grain crops so you've got these patches of very beautiful native bush um, where i am it's all york gums and jam trees and nearby there are wandu trees and a bit further over there are uh, maori trees and first south jarra trees so there were all these sort of incredible native trees but they were largely cleared and uh, you've got a strange kind of mixture of just farmland, open flat farmland, where we are, it's actually quite hilly on the edge of the Victoria Plain, but also largely cleared, so you've got rolling hills. Of the, most of the time, they look a kind of, you know, almost a burnt colour because of long dry spells. Uh, and excess burning off as well of stubble. And then for a brief period each year, you've got these you know, sort of green rolling fields with some bush around them. That's where I live, and uh, I'm in the middle of it. I look out my window onto valley, uh, York gums and jam trees outside. There are thornbills, there are weebills, there are silver eyes, there are mistletoe birds, 28 parrots, uh, galahs. We have kangaroos here, echidnas, and so on. And this is a restored area. I mean, this is this was once a pastoral kind of area, property that we're living on. And, you know, being anarchist and anti-property, we don't consider it property. We consider it stolen Noongar land. It uh, belongs to the Noongar people. And we're acting as restorers, I think, of uh, the uh, vegetation and hopefully the health of the land as a response to colonial intrusion and the colonial damage. So how does poetry help you connect to nature? Well, I mean nature. I mean, we're all in nature in one way or another, but I spend a lot of my time sort of outdoors. I spend a lot of my time, you know, watching birds and sort of nurturing trees, this kind of thing. So, you know, what I write about in my poetry is, is this stuff. So, you know, 
my poetry and nature are almost one and the same thing. The poetry can't be without the nature. Having said that, I think what makes what I do in my poetry maybe unusual is that a lot of other information comes in, a lot of other interests and knowledge bases about the world come into the poem. So often you have an image that's about nature that draws on lots of, if you like, non-natural things. And by creating those juxtapositions and those kind of tensions in the poem, it actually, I hope, draws more attention to the issue of nature. So it, I think, you know, I'm not just saying that you describe a tree, I'm just saying you describe a tree and you talk about toxicity in the atmosphere, you talk about the machinery that uh, damages the tree, and you have a knowledge of those things. So it's not just a matter of saying the bulldozer bad, which I think it is, it's a matter of actually understanding all the technicalities about how a bulldozer is made, where the materials are mined that you know, go into making the steel, and so on and so on. So it's like a chain of knowledge that then feeds into your activism as a nature poet. So being an, you know, a writer of ecological issues in poetry, for me, is something that requires not just being in nature, per se, quote marks, but actually knowing pretty well about everything around it and through it. So I think what you're doing is poetic thinking. Would you agree with that? And through language, you approach to the hierarchical relationships and also make readers aware of the interconnections between the self, others, and nature. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, thing about it is we are all you know to use that expression intersectionality well we we have a we have an intersectionality with with the planet we have in different ways we live in different communities we cross over and live and we find how we connect or, or don't connect but we are all connected to the biosphere we're all breathing its air we're all walking the planet we are all intersecting with the reality of its health and so for me, complex social thinking and issues of social justice, which so greatly concern me, and, and the rights of communities and individuals and the relationship between those rights are all connected and interconnected with the health of the biosphere. So I don't think that one can you know, enact uh, social justice, which is you know, the other big issue and concern of my life is, is the rights of living things, making sure that people are not persecuted, and, and for that matter, animals as well, because I deeply believe in animal rights and animal justice and justice for animals, is that um, if we don't actually you know, respect through this the actual health and well-being of the entire biosphere, then we're actually undercutting those things anyway, because they're inseparable. Yeah, I mean, social justice and environmental justice are intrinsically interconnected let's talk about your art your latest collection is called insomnia what is the reason for this ah well two reasons first literal reason is that i've suffered insomnia all my life i'm a restless sleeper and i wake constantly and sleep is never an easy process for me so i have a life of insomnia but of course it's also working as a symbol and a metaphor for for the way we're not dealing we think we're dealing with the issues of, you know, climate change and the damage of the, you know, the world's ecologies and so on, but we're not. It's still increasing at a rapid rate daily. So insomnia is our not taking notice. It's our, you know, it's kind of restlessness 
but not doing anything. So you're lying in bed and you can't sleep, so you can't repair your body. The sleep repairs the health of the body and you're worrying about things, but you're not actually changing things. So it's a, it's a contradiction. It's almost like a paradox. And in the actual title poem, Insomnia, in the book, there are these lines that go, anathema of sleep, restorer of consciousness and bringer of mental health. Why the gunshots then? Why the exponents of hunting, assuming only electric eyes, hot shot, and so on and so on it goes. So what that's saying is that you know sleep brings us restoration and health, and yet while this is going on, all the terrible things in the world are still going on. So being not able to sleep doesn't necessarily mean you're doing anything about it. So we're all tense, we're all upset about what's happening to the planet, but it doesn't mean we're actually doing anything about it. So insomnia becomes a kind of uh, look at that paradox, the fact that uh, we're restless, we can't sleep because of the damage we're doing and you know, the rapidity of climate change and, the, and the, uh, you know, the massive issues of toxicity and pollution that we're introducing into the biosphere. And yet we're just sort of, you know, if you like, tossing around in our beds, not able to sleep, but we're not doing anything. So it's a, it's a kind of plea um, for, uh, you know, if you can't sleep, get out there and do something rather than worrying about not being able to sleep. And you'll sleep a lot better. You'll sleep a lot better if you actually do something positive. So, you know, my message is always one of, I'm not a doomsayer. I, you know, I don't believe all is lost. I just don't. I never will. If there's one breath left to be had on the planet, I'll believe that we can use it constructively and repair things. We can repair. There are, you know, science tells us we're, we're getting close to the point where things can't be repaired. But as an activist and poet, I just actually refuse to accept that we can't make things better than they are and work towards a healthier biosphere and a more just world. I just believe that, and that's my kind of commitment. Otherwise, you give in and you just say, oh, well, that's too bad. It's all going to happen anyway, and I don't accept that. It doesn't have to happen. We can, we can change things for the better. Some believe poetry has lost its central role in literary culture, and some think poetry is rising at protests and rallies, as we have seen in civil rights, women liberation, and Black Lives Matter. What is the importance of poetry in the environmental movement? Oh, look, you know, I think poetry over time goes up and down in terms of its public reception. In some communities, of course, poetry never loses its essential core element of you know, being a ritualistic part of communication. You know, it could be in issues of call and response communities, it could be, you know, uh, in any kind of articulation of presence in a place. Poetry's always been there and it's been an active part of many communities' lives. In the kind of abusive nature of Western uh, culturising, by which I mean colonial capital, imperial capital, capitalist sort of push to dispossess others and possess more wealth and power for itself, poetry does get pushed down. It becomes advertising slogans to sell products. It can become, you know, as long as it's useful, it will keep a voice. But things are changing. People are becoming mobilized. They don't want this to happen. They don't want this damage, this exploitation. They're sick of seeing people, you know, you know in the United States, innocent people shot to death I think anyone shot to death is innocent, incidentally. There is never an excuse for any form of violence against anyone. But this kind of systemized brutality, you mentioned Black Lives Matter. I mean, you're talking about a state enacting war against the people and against culture. It's, it's horrendous. And people have had enough of this. They've always had enough of it. 
but they are mobilizing and poetry is a very, very big and powerful part of that. It's a way of sharing and a way of speaking out. And it's also a way of, you know, it, it substitutes for the uh, kind of, um, the state uses all sorts of slogans and devices and, you know, promotions in the media and so on to try and control people. Well, I think in these kind of civil rights refusal marches, refusals to be, you know, suppressed and oppressed any longer, um, language is being turned back against the state in a non-violent way. So the non-violent poetry becomes a tool against the violence of the state. This is very, very important, and it's getting more and more and more in lots of different sort of issues of oppression around the world. Why is this? Well, it's because we're at crisis point, so people are starting to empathise and understand other people's crises as well, because there's a global crisis of climate, a global crisis of environmental destruction, and people are starting to just starting, you know, even the wealthy Western middle class whites protectors of their own interests are actually also, some of them at least, starting to understand that they're actually also vulnerable and they're actually part of the problem. And that is actually freeing things up. And I think that language is becoming reinvigorated through this and hopefully it will decenter power and there won't be power as an anarchist. I don't believe there should be any centers of power at all. It should be entirely distributed evenly amongst all people and all communities. And uh, in this way, you know, my hope is that bigotries that run the world will lessen in conjunction with working to improve the health of the planet. So it's a complex picture, but, you know, poetry's in there. It's part of it, as the arts are in general. And, you know, it's, it's a good thing to see these things being embraced because, it, as again, it gives hope. I love when you said nonviolent poetry becomes a tool against the violence of the state. It's beautiful. Hmm. As you said, it's a complex picture and poetry is a part of it. Then my next question is, how effective do you think poetry is in activism and in particular protest environmental actions? Look, you know, I've written articles, people can find them if they want to search for them. You know, poetry can stop bulldozers. Well, I've seen it stop bulldozers quite literally. And, you know, it, it can. It's a very powerful tool. People pause to see what's going on. That hesitation can be the moment where something stopped. It may not stop it permanently, but it is a means of drawing a different kind of attention to what's being said. Because as soon as you've got something in cantery and you've got something that's full of refrains and repetitions and shifts in sound, it changes the way people perceive what's being said. They listen in a different way. Now, it's hard to hear over machinery and bulldozers and so on and chainsaws, but, you know, you stand there, you yell loud enough, uh, you stand in front of those bulldozers, you, you call these things out in a strong but peaceful way to the police and people can look online and find me doing that in various videos people have put up. It does make change and it does uh, stop. Poetry is a physical activist tool. It actually does things. I don't just say it because I think it, I've seen it happen. And in, um, you know, uh, various uh, actions in America uh, in terms of, uh, First Nations peoples trying to stop the uh, damage by, um, you know, these horrendous sort of pipelines running through their land and many other, whatever Trump tries to constantly overturn, these many other kind of crises of um, invasiveness of uh, Western capital and exploitation. Um, the, the poem, in many different forms, um, 
uh, and the use of language especially and the use of sound are a vital part of those processes and of those joinings of people and that's part of the strength is their voice and the sound of their voice and the words that are made. They don't just disappear into the air, they have meaning and I have a deep belief that language is, um, we, you know, we must possess our language and not let the oppressive tools of state and capital and the military and a basically um, white capitalist oppression take hold of it. And, and look, I, I'm, I come from a, you know, what they call a settler background in Australia. Uh, you know, Irish famine people who left in the mid-19th century to escape British, uh, especially English oppression in Ireland who came to Australia and in turn became oppressors themselves. So I'm not exonerating myself from that trajectory and that heritage. I recognise that. But, you know, recognition is part of this. But we have to say, look, you know, this is where the main sources of damage are in the world. And this is how they've come about, this kind of colonial possessing mentality, even when often colonisers can be dispossessed people themselves, as in the case of the famine Irish I come from. But that doesn't excuse then participating in the, uh, the quotation marks, benefits of accrual that come from, uh, you know, aligning yourself then with the colonisers. So, look, this is a, a complex thing. Poetry is a complex means of expressing things, but you can simplify things as well. So very complex ideas can be simplified down to a couple of lines that people can hear. They go into their heads and they expand. It's like reconstituting something, you know, dehydrating it and then putting it in water and reconstituting it. Poetry does that once it gets inside you. It's like, you know, fine dust that goes in and then it mixes with the body's <laughs> moistures and, and grows. It's, it's something like that. The notion of justice is one of the main themes you focus on in your poems. What does justice mean to you? Well, justice for me is is rights, equality, and fairness for all living things. I don't see any anyone or any animal or any living thing as you know being as having more rights than any other. Now, you know we. I'm a vegan, I've been for 33 or so years, I eat plants, I don't eat animals, but I don't deny the sort of rights of vegetation to exist. Um, but I particularly feel strongly, obviously, about human rights, and I believe that you know there has to be justice, equality, and respect for cultural difference. And poetry can create ways of communicating across cultural barriers without being appropriative or invasive. It's difficult, but it can be done. And I also feel strongly about animal rights and the justice for animals because I, you know, I think that they should have similar rights to humans in law and natural law. And, you know, I don't believe in state oppressive law, but I do believe in natural law. And I think that uh, in the end, the question of justice becomes one of quality and fairness. So that um, you know, as we judge others, we judge ourselves, and as we judge ourselves, we judge others. That kind of thing. There needs to be a dynamic of you know, of equality and fairness. So in the end, you know, it's a complex question, what is justice? But justice is the non-oppression of others and the allowing others to be as they are, as long as they're not physically hurting you or violent towards you or, you know, even for that matter, mentally oppressing you, then they have the right to do as they're doing. And I think that mutual respect. A big part of anarchist theory is the idea of the mutuality and so on. And I think that mutual respect 
is the key to justice. Yeah. Hmm. Speaking of justice, you said that you're a vegan and feminist, and veganism and feminism are inherently linked to the social justice issues. I mean, animal agriculture has taken over more than the 80% of the Amazon and also the meat and the dairy industry not only exploit the natural resources, but also exploit female bodies in reproduction of new animals and ensure a continuous supply of milk for human consumption. I wonder if you would like to reflect on that. Oh, well, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, in terms of veganism and feminism, my partner, Tracy Ryan, you know, who's a, a vegan and a feminist, you know, she would probably answer this in a different way as a woman from me, but I, I pride myself on being, you know, a feminist who is deeply committed to the idea that uh, a body is intact, a body can be colonized and the body shouldn't be colonized a body can be appropriated and shouldn't be appropriated and that we have to apply justice not only to the concept of liberty but to the physicality of liberty and you know you give the example of the destruction of the amazon and the um, absolute truth behind the it becomes an invasiveness of Women, in terms of, uh, in a literal sense, in the place, but also it has broader conceptual connotations in terms of the way anything that is seen as being useful to the patriarchy, useful to capital, which is, to my mind, essentially patriarchal, is there to either reproduce, to you know, further the wealth and, and continue the kind of control over that wealth, or is being used to self-identify. So in controlling the, the feminine, the patriarchy is actually able to suppress, to reproduce itself. And this is, this is you know, one of the ongoing issues as an anarchist that I have, um, is that, uh, see, gender, I, since I was a small, per, you know, literally my childhood, I've never believed gender was fixed. I've identified as a male all my life, but I've never felt like a male all my life. I felt like something else beyond description. I felt, and I don't know still what that is. Uh, I've you know, benefited from the patriarchy. I've been benefited from identification as a male. There's no question of that. But I haven't liked that identification. I've never been comfortable with it. And I reject most of the patriarchal values, if not all. It's always been the way with me. But I also know that unless you've actually lived an experience of someone identifying you in a specific way or you know, categorizing you or not letting you categorize yourself for that matter, then it's a very different experience. And one of my great concerns as an activist and a poet is that, and I find language and poetry very liberating, is that those kind of little micro-oppressions, like microaggressions, micro-oppressions, don't take place, is that you don't suddenly compartmentalize your reader into a certain set of responses. You let them choose their position. Of course, with the Amazon, no one's getting to choose the position, really, other than big beef and mining exploitation and logging exploitation. It's purely on the terms of greed, capital and patriarchy. We need to redress all this. There needs to be, and there is increasingly a feminist thinking. At the moment, I'm really excited over, I've been reading feminist geography and encountering 
know, some really fantastic thinkers and, you know, uh, looking at crisis situations and catastrophe situations from a feminist perspective and so on. This is exactly what we need to do when we're looking at the invasive uh, issues of environmental destruction. I mean, this is a very well-documented, much-spoken-about field I can contribute nothing to. But I can observe and note that I'm affected by it and I'm listening and I'm learning. And that's all I, I, can, I can't claim anything because, you know, my experience is going to necessarily be different. But I can respect it and learn from it. And I think that's one of the ways we need to approach the, you know, ecological crisis where... Sort of in, all of us are caught up in is to shift this this patriarchy. We need to push it away and find new ways of talking about the place and you know, from trees to forests to just about everything, air, you name it. Hmm. What message would you like to give to the future generation environmentalists and activists? Well, first of all, never, ever, ever give in. Never give in, you know. You can't give in. I see terrible things every single day. Mass destruction. It, it makes me weep most days. You know, Tracy sees it as well where we live. We, we and our son sees it. We see this, but you can't stop. You keep going and you try and shift things. It, it takes longer than you want, but it can be done. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is be open to the change in ideas and the way we talk about things that in some sense it shouldn't be changed by which I mean we shouldn't change the fact there are forests we shouldn't substitute them with the idea of a digital forest we should have real forests so that's something that to me is immutable that, that a forest should be a conceptual forest isn't good enough but in thinking about the real forest we do need to change our discourse around how we talk about things we need to be able to adjust we need to be generationally sensitive younger activists coming up we don't close our minds to how they're working if they're working for the health of the biosphere then we listen and we work with them and we hope the younger activists work with the older activists so an intergenerational thing is always important and we need to deeply respect cultural diversity and different cultural approaches to the same issues because there will be different ways of seeing it and we have to be sensitive to those and we must be sensitive to the fact that we you know oppression of the state will try and gender and control be who you are as an activist the you know the gender you are be the identity you wish to choose for yourself and that you feel part of because that's your story it's not theirs you have that they can't steal it from you and they can't own it like they try and own everything you have rights as an activist as you do as a human being and i think that never cede those always hold on to that and your story and your people's story whoever those people might be is not for someone else to steal off you and that way you will remain empowered and you'll believe in what you're doing and you won't feel bullied and controlled by other activists because I think cadre politics can be very damaging I think you've got to retain a sense of who you are mixing with many other people over common concerns so that's a very worthy way of putting it but I spend a lot of my life thinking about these things And lastly, John, we would love to hear one of your poems from your recent collection. Do you have one in particular or shall I just read one? Just, just read one, it's your call. Okay, I'm going to read a poem um, called Emily Bronte Storm Poem, Jantry Gully, January 2018. I've always loved Emily Bronte's poetry and I've loved Wuthering Heights too. My uh, partner Tracy Ryan's been a great lover of the Brontes as my mother was so they're kind of you know the Brontes sisters have always been sort of part of my mental psychology 
and yet, you know, the thing is they also, they don't belong on this land in any way, in any ways, any more than probably I do, but I try and work, you know, and acknowledge the people whose land it is and to share a kind of respectful presence here as, you know, I think that's part of it. And I think, you know, we're all constantly in conversation with where we're living. So though the two factors are a big part of this, Jamtree Gully is the place we live in, and it was about a storm that was supposed to come. Well, it wasn't supposed to come. It wasn't predicted to come, but it was showing up on the barometer because I read the barometer every day. And uh, anyway, this is this poem. Emily Bronte's Storm Poem, Jamtree Gully, January 2018. The storm isn't here. It isn't predicted. And yet the barometer's needle has cast its lot down past the leaf, even down to the floor. All is stagnant. No, a tremble of door and window, ants moving in. I am withdrawn and extrovert, making sure things are secure. Nature is life, and the bout of high wind and sparks stirs us to friction. What can be destroyed needs following up with acts of conservation. The storm is approaching. No, it is always here, building above and below us, those skies remain clear. No, the blue slightly feathers. So there we go. So you can go with that as you will, but that's about the unpredictable and about the fact that also, you know, it's about literally climate behaving differently from what, you know, the Bureau of Meteorology say it's going to behave and also about the storm within ourselves that's always present, it's like insomnia. You know, we, we're awake and yet we're not doing anything constructive. So let's use the time and change things for the better. So there we go. <laughs> John Kinsella is a nonviolent activist and poet. John, thank you for taking the time with us today. A pleasure. And you have a good one. See you later. Custodians of the Planet is an independent and freely available media program and relies entirely on contributions from listeners. If you appreciate what we do and would like to support us, there are a few ways to do so. Start a conversation with your friends and colleagues and be part of the change. Share a link to our podcasts on social media. Donate to our podcast. Each episode is the product of hours of on-location audio recording, editing, research, scheduling, and music composition. Just $10, a couple of coffees will sustain the hours of labor that go into producing each episode and ensure Custodians of the Planet is an ongoing series. Thank you for your support. For this episode, I'd like to say special thanks to Bonnie Perez for editing the script and Chris Jofuarez for his technical support. I'm Denise Yildiz. Stay tuned for the next episode and thank you for listening.